For the week of August 29th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 553, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And on ABBA Voyage, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh, geez. I've got no idea what ABBA Voyage is. Wait, ABBA? Like ABBA the music people, ABBA? If you change your mind. Yes, ABBA. ABBA the group. They are teasing something we don't know yet, but on Wednesday, the 2nd, on September 2nd, they will announce something, Dave. Remember, they were going to do a song, and there was going to be this multimedia virtual reality tour of holograms of ABBA. Uh, Simon Cowell was working with them. Then that disappeared. Then they were going to do three songs. Now they're going to announce something. They've got a website, ABBAvoyage.com. I've signed up for the email. I'm. Uh, it's like a band that big to step away and then come back. It's like Led Zeppelin when they did the O2 Arena. It's kind of cool. Uh, maybe they'll have a whole album. Who knows? Anything could anything is possible, but you'll all know it by the time you listen to our podcast, I bet. But that's exciting. Uh, the trailer for Spider-Man No Way Home, massive first 24 hours. Spidey is the most popular Marvel character. They had 355 million views for Spider-Man No Way Home in its first 24 hours, beating the record set by Avengers Endgame at 290 million views. You know what? The world has not grown that much. There's not that big a jump in population since Avengers Endgame. So that's a stone-cold beat. Like, people are excited for this movie. But that's not where I'm at. I'm not at Abba Voyage. I'm not at Spidey's home in Queens. I am in isolation. Wait, what? You're yep. in isolation? Someone in my Why? household has COVID. So I've been in isolation well, most of the time while Sperling's away. On Wednesday, the day Abba releases perhaps new music, or at least tells us, when that new music is coming, I will probably be free. I've tested negative. My mom, who's 92, has tested negative. We're staying away from the other person. Uh, they're getting a little better, though they still have a headache and they feel run down, but they never had to go to the hospital, thank God, since there are no hospital beds available in Alabama. Get vaccinated. So uh, now, uh, now, is this person vaccinated? Yes, they were fully vaccinated and they did not have to go to the hospital. And they felt like crap. And brutal headaches for four or five days, slept most of the time, getting chills, even in the middle of, you know, a hot, hot summer. So did not feel good well at all. Wouldn't wish it on their worst enemy. However, get vaccinated because if they weren't vaccinated, God knows what would have happened. Everybody I know who is vaccinated, who has gotten this, well, a, a majority of the people have said, if this is what it's like when you're vaccinated, can exactly. you imagine what it's like when you're unvaccinated? Yeah. Well, can you imagine how hard it is to talk when you're on a ventilator? Yes, but we don't, exactly. have, we don't have that problem. You're back from Cinecon. Tell us what we're going to talk about this week on the show. Well, so people might wish we were on ventilators after, after this show. <laughs> In fact, uh, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got two weeks worth of box office, lots of streaming data, and the usual pandemic and social justice updates. In fact, we have uh, some, uh, we'll be going to the Middle Kingdom for some social justice updates. Uh, hey, by the way, when did this podcast become so political? And another I, I thing. Know. And uh, yeah, one more thing, uh, more importantly, at least for me, is uh, we've got CinemaCon. I was at the pared down, but more important than ever event, which turned into a cheerleader for exhibition. Hey, CinemaCon is always a cheerleader for exhibition, but with streaming breathing down its neck, movie theaters need cheering more than ever. One of the best panels was optimistically titled, The Big Screen is Back. And the moderator was Ryan Fonder of the Los Angeles Times. He'll join us to discuss that panel. CinemaCon and the state of movie going. By the way, I kept correcting people all week for pronouncing Ryan's name wrong. Ryan Fonder, not Ryan Fonder. Uh, and uh, well, there aren't I am. Cool. Aren't you cooler than the school? 
no, I was mispronouncing it in our in our intro. That's just wonderful. How do you say uh, his name? Ryan Fonder, not Fonder. Oh, Fonder. <laughs> Fonder, yes. All right. Uh, like now, Fawn, like in- a dappled deer. Correct. Like Ryan Fonder. Okay. Yes. On Inside Baseball, we will discuss the pandemic, different rules in different states, and fights among creatives are wreaking havoc. Or is it wrecking havoc? I don't know. Either way, it's havoc on live theater tours, concert tours, and most notably, and this is actually big news, production sets are going to be an issue for years to come. We'll discuss what's going on. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. Did I, uh, did I finish in time? Did I finish in time? Almost. We got about nine minutes before Ryan shows up. Uh, okay. Anyway, we've got box office from around the world for the week ending August 29th. We pulled info from Comscore and lots of other sources. And the number one movie is the theatrical exclusive Free Guy, which also got a opening in China. One week warning, but they did open up over the weekend. They made $68 million worldwide, including $24 million from China, where the reviews and the audience reaction was great. It's made $180 million overall. And at the end of the month, it'll open up on Disney+. Plus. At number two is Candyman, which made $28 million in its opening week. This also is a theatrical exclusive. And director Nia DaCosta, for helming this up reboot of a horror flick, she is the first black female director to ever debut at number one at the North American box office. Very cool. Now, before you say, look at that, two exclusives in a row doing really well at the box office, here's a counterexample. Paw Patrol. That movie cost $25 million to make. This week, it made $27 million. It's at $62 million worldwide, and it is on Paramount+. Plus. So this movie will triple its reported budget. It's also on Paramount+, Plus, which means you can't draw any conclusions from nothing right now. At oh, but four, we do know how much money that uh, Black Widow made. <laughs> you know, like this week? Like no, 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 no. In, in, they said uh, about two weeks ago, they said, we've made $125 million on PVOD, and we're going to share some of that money with our good friend and buddy, Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> At number four is Raging Fire. Thank you for that fiction update. Uh, Raging Fire is the <laughs> Hong Kong thriller starring Donnie Yen. It made $18 million this week, still going strong, despite the presence of Free Guy. It's made $165 million, basically in the Middle Kingdom and one or two other territories. The Suicide Squad, that's at $14 million this week. It's at $155 million worldwide, just matching its budget. It's also on HBO Max. And keep in mind, the original film grossed over a billion dollars, $1.1 billion for Suicide Squad without the the. Jungle Cruise, they're talking about doing a a sequel to this movie. It made $13 million this week. It's at $187 million. Again, it's available on Disney Plus premium video on demand. It will be regular regular video on demand tomorrow. So by the time you hear this, it will be available, I guess, on regular video on demand. It costs $200 million to make. It's going to pass that, but no way is it going to triple it. Does it well, work here's for my question. We'll never know. Yeah, here's my question. Is it on Disney Plus tomorrow? Or is it just on it has, no, it's been on It's been on Disney Plus the whole time. You know, that's no, 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 a movie no, no, that but, was day but, and date premium video on demand since day and date. So obviously will it be on regular Disney Plus. Will it be on regular? I'm a subscriber. I, I can watch it. Disney. Plus. I can't imagine they would charge you $30 on Disney Plus and let other people watch it for $4. So I'm assuming that they will switch it over, but we'll find out. And if you do yes. see that, let us know. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. 
The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And we are on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can find us. Now, I am a little behind in responding to email, so I do have to get to that this week. All right. Well, you are away. We all understand. Uh, back to the box office. Another horror flick, Don't Breathe 2. The sequel to Don't Breathe made another $8 million. That's at $35 million and counting. It's going to triple its budget of $15 million before all is said and done. If you're going to invest in a movie, not a good idea. But if you do, make it a cheap, low-budget horror flick. The Boss Baby Family Business, that animated flick, is in theaters and on Peacock. It's just hit the $100 million mark worldwide. Good for them. The original grossed half a billion dollars, so again, nowhere near close. But if a lot of people said, hey, man, I really would love to watch Boss Baby, I'm going to sign up for Peacock. I don't think that happened, but maybe. You never know. F9, Fast and Furious 9, as, the, as we adults call it, that passed the $700 million mark. And guess what? There will be a Fast and Furious 10. They've dated it for April 2023. Let the hugging begin. Never has there been an action film with more hugging than Fast and Furious. Uh, respect the Aretha Franklin biopic starring Jennifer Hudson, Oscar winner Jennifer Hudson, I should say, $7 million this week, $23 million so far. Reminiscence, the Hugh Jackman sci-fi flick that opened last week, didn't do so well. Uh, it's at $11 million and counting, but it is also on HBO Max day and date. That's certainly the sort of film that would appeal to the older viewers, and they are the ones who are less likely to head back to the theaters right now. Speaking of old, you've got M. Night Shyamalan's horror flick, Old. Another $5 million bucks. That's at $85 million and counting. Here's a movie that opened up last week. Hostage, Missing Celebrity. This is a South Korean remake of a Chinese film called Saving Mr. Wu. I can see a Hollywood remake of it as well. A big celeb is held hostage by people and they want money for him. So imagine Brad Pitt being held hostage and playing Brad Pitt. Lots of fun could be had. It made Actually, five remember being John Malkovich? Oh, sure. There's a well, Yes, but this is well, not like being a, John Malkovich. There's lots of movies sort of like this. Yeah, you know, yeah. There, there is a, a new film that stars Nicolas Cage as... Nicolas Cage. Nicolas well, Cage. Yes, people have played themselves before in the movies. I didn't say this was brand new. I just said this particular thing will travel well all over the world. You can see it. And I think it's more of a trend that we haven't nailed that down of movies being remade locally more and more often these days. I think that's a bit of a trend along with the trend of movies playing worldwide, uh, which is also great. Anyway, Hostage, Missing Celebrity, is in South Korea. It made $5 million this week. It's at $10 million total. It's one of the rare South Korean-made films to be out in theaters, so good for them. Luca is in a few territories worldwide. It made $4 million this week. It's had a decent play in China where it opened up. It's at $34 million and counting. Obviously, nowhere near where it would have done if it had played in theaters worldwide traditionally. But these are strange times. But Luca does have good reviews and good word of mouth. So you might want to check it out. Upcoming summer in China. Uh, that's at $3 million this week. $57 million worldwide. Looking down to see if there's anything of interest to talk about. Uh, the Protégé opened up with Samuel L. Jackson, Maggie Q, and Michael Keaton. Flop. Uh, I think it's been pretty firmly rejected. Even in these times, you can say, this movie didn't work. Another movie that didn't work is Farewell, My Lad, a Chinese romance that opened up this week. It was delayed from earlier this year or last year. Uh, I forget what was when it was scheduled to come out, but it was delayed for technical reasons, which means it was censored for some unknown reason. Now it opened up and it made two million bucks. The Green Knight is doing not so well. Stillwater with Matt Damon. 
a lot of troubles at the launching of that movie. I, I hold them responsible for that. That's not gaining any more traction, really. These are tough times. Maybe it will find an audience when it's available in your homes. And Black Widow, two weeks in a row, it has dropped 90% in box office from the week before. It's like Disney cut it off at the knees. It's made $1 million this week. It's at $371 million worldwide. So Free Guy did open up in China. Uh, Amazon's Tomorrow's War, that movie, they just got a last minute, oh, you can open up in China this week. So they'll be opening up on Friday. I can just picture the ad people running around to get ready. Amazon, they bought Hotel Transylvania 4, which is a big worldwide franchise. It's just not going to work this year. And it is a dated movie. You know, it's pegged to Halloween. Either you play it now or you wait till next Halloween. And they said, let's just sell it to Amazon for a hundred million bucks, but we'll hold back China. They're going to open it up in China if they get a chance. I do like this. Deadline had a nice update about the worldwide box office. They don't cover every territory, but they did say, talking about the pandemic, France, Italy, and Germany are requiring health passes or a recent negative COVID test to attend cinemas. In Australia, 65% of the box office is shut down. In New Zealand, it's entirely shut down. Japan has restricted hours and capacity limits in 90% of the market. Korea still has level four restrictions in place. And all of Southeast Asia, save Singapore, is still closed. That's the commercial atmosphere in which movies are trying to make money. So again, whatever we say about this or that movie, for most of them, you really can't get any good sense of what's working or would have worked differently under different circumstances, or does this model work versus that model? Throw it all out the window. Let's wait till life is a little more sane again. What do you say? Uh, I agree, uh, but you wouldn't know it from being at CinemaCon last week. Really? Oh, one more flick, because it played in Italy. Uh, it's called Me Against You, The Mystery of the Enchanted School, or Me Contro Te, Il Mistero della Scuola Incantata. Uh, this movie is a sequel to another movie. It's some sort of ongoing series. That one opened up last week in Italy. It was the biggest opening in Italy since March of 2020. It just made $3 million, but they were turning the lights back on a little bit. This week, it only made 900000 So uh, it's, it's not setting the world on fire, but hey, at least it worked for a week. Anyway, that's our international and worldwide box office. And that brings us to CinemaCon. Sperling, tell us about it and introduce Ryan. Well, okay. So yeah, why don't we move along into CinemaCon? Because a lot of the box office stuff that you were just talking about, like things opening in China with one week notice, by the way, which is what Free Guy had. One week, and they were told, oh, you open next week. Tomorrow War, same thing. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> you have a date. Congratulations. Uh, but a lot of that was the discussion at CinemaCon last week. And we're actually kind of lucky because we have the winner of CinemaCon here with us. Now, I was at CinemaCon wow. last week, and one of the best panels was titled, and it was very optimistic, The Big Screen is Back. It featured, among others, director Patty Jenkins. And you might remember her from uh, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman 1984. She's also directing uh, Rogue Squadron, the Star Wars film. Mark Zarati, he was the CEO of Cinemark. He was also on the panel along with Rolando Rodriguez uh, from Marcus Theaters. There was Chris Aronson from Paramount. So it was kind of, you know, a, a creative, two, two movie theater operators and the head of distribution for one of the studios. It was hosted by our guest, Ryan Fonder, as I just mentioned, the winner of CinemaCon because this panel was what needed to happen at CinemaCon. Ryan is a staff writer and film business reporter at the LA Times and also heads up the newsletter, The Wide Shot, which, by the way, you should pause this podcast right now, go subscribe to it, and then come back and listen to the end of this, because that newsletter is phenomenal. Ryan, thank you for joining us. 
<laughs> Thanks, Sperling. Uh, That's a good intro, man. That's uh, one of the best <laughs> ones I've got. That's as good as it gets, I'm afraid. By the That's way, you can get, you can call yeah. him Sperling Reach and call me Michael Glitz because he messed up your name in the intro. I said Ryan. <laughs> F- yeah, for like the entire the entirety of CinemaCon, I was like, it's not Ryan Fonder, it's Ryan Fonder. Uh, all of CinemaCon, I was telling people that, and then of course, when when mentioning it at the head of the show, I screw it up. Uh, but yes. Uh, so now the Lots big of people is- have done it. it. Takes me back to grade school, honestly. Well, <laughs> so we're with- all good. Before we dive into CinemaCon, tell us about the wide shot. You just launched this a few months ago, right? No, no, no. Yeah. Just like half a year, right? Yeah, it's it's like six months old, something like that. Cool, you know, pretty close. How is it going? Yeah. What has it been like? I mean, it's all the rage to do a newsletter. How successful has it been for you? What has it opened up in terms of things you can talk about and the ways you can talk about them? Yeah, I mean, it's like a completely different writing style from writing a 700 word uh, newspaper article. Like I can put a little bit more voice into it. I can um, editorialize a little bit if uh, if I feel comfortable on the, on the subject matter. And, you know, I can stretch out a lot more and talk about more digital stuff, video games, streaming music, uh, all this fun stuff that's going on in the world that has nothing to do with cinemas or uh, movie theaters. And what's been like one that. of your favorite pieces or what's gotten some of the best reaction for you? Um, well, one of the funny earlier ones was, well, it, there were a couple of funny early ones. Uh, one was on the uh, SPAC renaissance uh, <laughs> in, uh, in the finance world where all these companies are trying to raise money through these uh, uh, iffy shell companies. And uh, that seems to have only exploded more and become more of a story. Yeah, I feel like Since a loser then, for not having a SPAC. I know, you're, you're, you're nobody yeah. in this business unless you've got your own, your own SPAC. Uh, you and should for, call it the showbiz spack box. <laughs> that yeah. would be cool. Uh, actually, don't laugh. Uh, that might be a good box. way to go public. So, so for those who don't know, a special purpose acquisition company is one that is already public and then goes out and and uh, kind of acquires a private company, which is the real purpose for this this uh, original public company, which had no business at all. Do you feel a sense of feedback from when you're doing a newsletter? Do your bosses respond or do you get enough feedback from readers? Or do you feel like you're, you're figuring out what works, what doesn't work or, you know, what's, what works there that doesn't work on, you know, in a print or what? Yeah, totally. Uh, it's definitely a process and you know, the bosses are into it, so that's good. Cool. Uh, <laughs> that helps. At least they're reading so, it. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, getting a lot of feedback from sources and readers, it's good for sourcing. It's good to have sort of that, you know, kind of dialogue through the newsletter and all of that. And yeah, yeah, definitely people respond with ideas and call up and have, uh, have, have thoughts on various, uh, topics that we write on. So yes, indeed, it is definitely, uh, helping to further the conversation and my work and everything. So that's, that's a nice part about it too. Well, and when we, uh, started CinemaCon, we, I say that as if somehow I, I was the one who started CinemaCon. No, at the beginning of this year's CinemaCon, uh, Matthew Baser, who is the head of Flick's Brewhouse, he said, even before they announced CinemaCon, he said, you know, if we all go to Las Vegas and it's just a whole bunch of studios sitting in front of the room, talking at us as exhibitors and telling us what we're going to do, there is no point. We need to get into a room, roll up our sleeves and, uh, you know, beat each other up, basically. Hmm. Uh, and he said, there's, you know, this needs to be a conversation about what works. 
And for the first four days, it started on Monday evening and went through Thursday evening. For the first like three and a half days, that's exactly what it was. It was just studios kind of saying, we love you guys. We really, really love you guys. No, seriously, I know we sold Hotel Transylvania to, <laughs> to Amazon, but we're really going to have movies that we put in your movie theaters, we think, maybe, perhaps. I mean, it might be also on VOD, but we're not sure. Nothing's and- changed. Nothing's changed. We're all best buddies. Yeah. Now, what? So Sony went on Monday night and they had a great presentation, except uh, as one exhibitor said, every studio presentation, no matter how positive it is, has a little flavor of a hint of uh, waiting for the other shoe to fall, like a, a black cloud. And that is, you know, as much as Sony is saying they're going to release movies and movie theaters, they keep selling them to Amazon. So they sold. Yeah. They sold everything but Spider Man, it seems. Uh, and then, <laughs> and, and Ghostbusters, then, yeah. yeah. And, and Ghostbusters, yeah. which, by the way, they showed. Um, mm-hmm. They showed the whole, the whole movie. Uh, and then MGM went, and again, they said, look, we love, we love movie theaters and, and exclusive theatrical release windows, and we can't wait to have movies in your movie theaters, except for the fact that Amazon is buying us and might actually take all that stuff to Amazon Prime. And then Warner Brothers went and they didn't even show up. They right. literally did not. They had, it was like a Zoom call. Now, Andrew Cripps was in the United Kingdom. He couldn't come back. But the head of distribution for Warner Brothers was literally pre-recorded saying, I had a previous family engagement, but we really love you guys. You guys are so important to us. You're our partners. You're so important to us. We couldn't even be there. Uh, although we have four people in the audience, four or five executives in the audience we're not going to let them speak for us. Uh, and then they showed these movies that everybody liked, but again, they're streaming day and date right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then Universal came. Universal uh, did a great job, I thought, of not having stars there, but having stars on screen present, I guess, their favorite movie theaters and then employees from those favorite movie theaters who would then introduce each film. I thought that actually worked. It was very sentimental, but uh, kind of worked. Uh, but really, the highlight of the whole thing, at least for those who weren't regal theater managers, was mm-hmm. uh, because there were 500 of those, was your panel at the end of the show, which was exactly what Matthew Baser called for at the, you know, even before it was announced, which is exhibitors and distributors in a room with fists, basically verbal fists, but still, uh, they had Patty Jenkins on their side. So did you know that it was going to get that contentious at the start of it, like before it began? Well, I was hoping they were gonna they were gonna mix it up a little bit because these things are, like you said, they're pretty much pointless unless you can get people really talking to each other. And it can't be about me getting in the mix and, you know, following up with with it, it can't all be just about like tr- trying to do like the thing that a hard-hitting journalist does, which is ask tough questions and and push back on responses that don't make sense. Like these panels work better when it's the two sides cross-talking mm-hmm. and pushing back on each other. So there were just as an example, um, I, I brought up the issue of uh, premium large format screens and the fact that a lot of people who are going back to theaters right now are going back for these more expensive premium IMAX screenings with the rocking seats and all of that. And like, is this, is this a sign that the analysts are right? That when people go back to cinema, it's going to be a, a split 
and between is it going to be a business that is more premium and less frequent? Are people going to spend more money when they go, and are they going to go less often? Which you know, in some people's view, the is model, bad the model the of the opera. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like, is 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 cinema basically going to become Broadway? You know, where it's this kind of premium once in a while experience. And you know, Rolando Rodriguez, who's CEO of Marcus pushed back on this notion and said that um, uh, theater tickets are still way cheaper than going to an NFL game, uh, which is true. But Chris Aronson from Paramount jumped in and said that that was basically a fallacy and a false comparison, totally apples and oranges. Um, and there was a really good back and forth about how pricing factors into this business and where things are going. So that was just an example of something. That I thought that was great. And I thought Chris Aronson was wrong about the sports comparison because, you know, you got a, a 90, 80, 90 games at Yankee Stadium a year. That's a lot of games. That's a, you know, one, you got two, three games a week. That's, that's an everyday kind of event, just like going to the movies. Uh, but he was right when he said, while he disagreed about that comparison, he said, no, we want to get in the crowds. We do not want to become a premium format. The more people that go, the better you do. And he has his background in exhibition, doesn't he? So uh, he speaks, he yeah. speaks from both sides pretty well, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think in his perspective is he wants it to be a, a, a mass audience and that if you just have more people going through the turnstiles uh, than fewer, that that'll be, you know, that'll be more revenue overall. You just open it up to more people and have it be sort of a habit forming sort of thing. Because exhibition has always been, until recently, something that has relied on the audience being in the habit of going a lot and going frequently. Uh, that seems to be less of the case now than it was in the past. So that, I think that's where he's coming from on that. Well, also, you know, what's interesting, at least in regards to what came up during this panel about pricing, is that it never comes up. And here's why they're not allowed to talk about pricing out in the open. They can talk together, but an, a distributor is never allowed to tell an exhibitor or a movie theater operator. How much to charge? That is not now. They can give them a range. They can say, "Look, you can't charge two cents, okay? Because then you're giving my product away, so that you can sell a more expensive product, popcorn. So you can't do that. So movie theater tickets in your in your region, in your city, roughly are about eight dollars. So for every movie ticket you sell, the per cap is eight dollars. So if you sell them for five dollars on Tuesdays, then on Saturdays you have to sell them for like ten dollars or twelve dollars to kind of make it all even. Uh the fact that they were talking about it out in the open like that, I think every exhibitor there was looking at each other like, are they are, are we are are is that allowed what what the <laughs> hell is going on? That is what made that so remarkable that you were that they were actually just talking about it. Yeah. And this has been the thing that people talk about you know, kind of all the, all the time behind closed doors. And I think, you know, speaking about it just generally, like it wasn't like Chris was trying to pressure uh, Robert into no. doing, uh, you know, $5 tickets for every screening. It was more just like we need to think about this as, as a direction the industry is going in. They've been doing it on Tuesdays since I was a kid, you know, to bargain Tuesday, yeah. maybe bargain Wednesday. Why not? If there's no movies that open up on Wednesday or bargain Monday, it couldn't hurt necessarily. If it's working one day, maybe two. But one area where mm -hmm. I wish the gloves came off a little bit more was when, when you talked about the relationship 
between exhibitors and studios. I felt like Mark Zarati and Chris Aaron said the relationship hasn't changed. And I'm like, really? <laughs> because yeah, that, you know. that was a little, yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, Patty Jenkins said, oh, it looks like theaters have leverage over the studios to which I wanted to say, uh, on this planet or some other planet, because on this planet, they have literally no leverage. They were closed down for 12 months and they were willing to, like, I could have shown my home movies in a movie theater. They had to take anything. And then Mark Zarati, the head of Cinemark, a big theater chain said, well, I don't know that there's any more leverage. We don't have any more leverage and the studios don't have any more leverage to which I thought, and Chris Aronson agreed. And I thought, really guys, are we really going to play that game? I mean, did, 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 did you think that when they were saying that? Um, yeah, that was a little odd, and I was surprised that anyone would suggest that theaters had more leverage coming out of the pandemic. Although you do see, you know, when during during the pandemic, when HBO Max was doing its day and date thing, the theaters did get better splits from uh, Warner Brothers uh, to the degree that so that to the degree that the movies actually played in their theaters, they did get more money per ticket sale from them. So there is a little bit of you know them trying to play nice there. But, you know, it, it does seem like there's like, like, but there is a reason that, that people like Chris Aronson showed up to CinemaCon at all, right? I mean, they could have just kind of thrown theater chains completely off the side of the boat, but instead they are, you know, it, it does seem like many studios believe that they need theatrical and exclusive theatrical to make a profit in this business. Well, they should, because two years ago they had record worldwide box office, you know, so there's, there's no reason to think people are completely lost. But the one thing that does seem to have changed is that the windows have changed forever. That 45 Absolutely. is probably the new 90 and that's where it should have been headed to. And that's where it was going to head to. I think it just happened quicker, but Anybody who thinks zero is the new 90 is is not thinking very well when you got a $200 million movie. But it feels like, you know, dynamic windowing, I feel like not for most movies. My only thought is that if a movie is a real flop, exhibitors should not stand in the way of letting it go to video on demand as soon as possible. If it's out of theaters, just let it go to video on demand. But as, in a matter of course, if you can get 45 days, get 45 days. But if you're not showing it, let them throw it on video. You know, what's the harm? People aren't going to expect it. You know, they're not going to expect Suicide Squad in their home a week after it opens, even if they've had this weird year. I feel like they know, oh, you go to the theater and eventually it pops up. It used to be VHS, then DVD, then video on demand. Now it's a streamer. But, you know, the windows have changed, but hopefully it seems like they're going to settle down on 45. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, I wanted to talk to Patty Jenkins about, you know, how she felt about her movie going direct to streaming at the same time as going to theaters because she was really kind of the um, unwilling pioneer in that whole situation, even though she got paid out. So, you know, it didn't really hurt her financially. Um, but she, might se have she, seemed, helped her. she seemed unhappy, you know, yeah, not, not right. that it was done because she was on board, but it just, you know, the movie came and it disappeared. Yeah. And that's what kind of happens with big movies that just are dropped on streaming and become part of the endless scroll. You know, I don't want to sound like a shill for the theatrical experience but there does seem to be a marketing problem and a stickiness problem when you put a movie on hbo max or netflix uh and, and it doesn't have an exclusive theatrical release it's just the cultural impact is just different i don't know what to say now what did you do well you know that's something that chris aronson mentioned he said you know if you put a movie on television it's a tv movie and when you put it in a movie theater 
it's a movie. That's why they call it movie theaters. And I thought that was like, you know, a really good statement. But I also thought Patty Jenkins saying, you know, that she just, you know, these movies come, they are released. You hear about them for like a day or a week and then you never hear about them again. Yeah. And I don't, yeah. And I don't want to like, it, it does seem a little unfair uh, in a, in a certain way. Cause like people obviously don't make these movies to be, um, no one's trying to make a bad movie, you know? And that's kind right. of a, a line that distributors use all the time when they're talking about, Oh, well, you know, if it's on TV, it's a, it's a TV movie, like almost as a dig. I don't know if that's necessarily true in the culture anymore. Like people do watch this stuff, you know, they just watch it in a very different way. Right, and and, you know, and people talk about the crown for months on end. They'll talk about absolutely. you know uh, Bridger, Bridgerton. You know they'll talk about all sorts of TV shows, Stranger Things. But a two-hour movie that's gambit. not designed to be seen on a TV screen that doesn't have a months-long uh, series of episodes to drop. Uh, that becomes harder to keep it. Uh, you know, there's ten thousand movies on your screen. And when you go to a movie theater, there's eight movies to choose from. When you're at home, you got hundreds. So it's a little harder for yeah. it to keep it up there. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting conversation right now because Patty Jenkins is on stage talking about how she's fine with people watching uh, Wonder Woman 1984 for the second time or third time on streaming, but wishes it they could see it for the first time on that big screen experience because that's where the big impact in is. Meanwhile, you've got people like James Gunn out there talking about how they have um, like his favorite movies he's never seen in the theater before like jaws and films like that these movies become cultural touchstones also over time on the small screen so it'd be interesting to it'd be interesting to get those two in a room and i bet he'd love to see it on the big screen it's just the the ability to access a huge library is awesome but that doesn't change the fact that it's it's better to see jaws for the first time in a packed movie theater i'm sure he wishes he'd had that experience too but i'm sure most movies i've seen i've seen on tv in the first time too yeah, that's totally true. And you don't. And the other thing is, you don't get Jaws on TNT for you know, 40, 50 years unless it has that blockbuster exactly. beginning. Exactly. So that's another factor. Yeah. I just, I just wish I could get those two in a room to talk about it because clearly there's different perspectives and they've had similar um, experiences with uh, distributors. What did you two think about marketing? There was a discussion from exhibitors about how we should partner together and do more for marketing films. Uh, I think it was Mark who said that, yeah, we can do a better job, but it wasn't clear to me if he had anything in mind other than saying, hey, you should buy more ads on our apps. <laughs> right, right. And then you have Chris up there talking about how, how movie theaters need to play fewer trailers. He's so, right. You know, 40 minutes, I absolutely right. book it and say, I'm showing up, you know, when the trailers are over. I like to watch trailers, but not eight of them, not 10 of them. I made a joke in the in the most recent newsletter about how they should have just streamed CinemaCon on YouTube right. because or Netflix or, or, or whatever. Because, I mean, this this whole exercise is really an industry facing thing like it's a pep rally and what people would really be interested in seeing is not you know people like me writing about trailers and footage that they'll never be able to see it's like this it's this behind the scenes basically 12 minute documentary that paramount uh, made about how Tom Cruise did this crazy stunt in Norway. He risked where his life. A, <laughs> he rode a bike off a ramp on top of a cliff in Nor- Norway six times. Yeah, because he's Tom Cruise. You know, 
But I mean, don't you think like that particular? So, so first of all, Paramount has become the Tom Cruise studio because they Absolutely. showed they showed three movies. Uh, I'm not the whole movie, but they showed they talked about Top Gun, they talked about Mission Impossible, and they showed Clifford the Big Red Dog. So Is I don't know. Clifford the Red Dog. Oh, okay. No, no, no. So that other than Clifford, they're either you know the Paw Patrol movie, uh, they're they're you know cartoon animals or Tom Cruise. Okay. Uh, but that they did this featurette, and I would agree with Mark Zerati. I think it was who said if we could show that featurette in well, our they, movie they theaters, they can and they will. It'll be seen. It, well, it's like a fifteen-minute right. They'll, but I mean, they'll show it on TV or they'll stream it. They'll put it on YouTube. Why wouldn't they? It's unbelievable. You watch that and you're like, why wouldn't I go see that movie? It it shows Tom Cruise like it's and the the Chris McQuarrie, the the director, watching him do it for the first time and not no. Well, obviously we know what happened because we haven't read about Tom Cruise perishing in a horrible stunt. But mm-hmm. still, like at the time, you put yourself in his shoes. Like this could be. Well, it's the first day of production. There was a reason it was the first day of production because there may not might not be a second day of production depending on how the stunt went. Hundred <laughs> percent. The other thing I thought was interesting was Patty talked about the movie going experience and how she loved IPix. Uh, I don't know where she goes to theaters regularly, but I've often talked on the show about uh, the last twenty years has been just a golden age for going to the movies. You have g- great screen image quality. You have great sound. They've really improved the food. You've got the the reclining seats in many theaters, not always the Barca lounger, but you've got comfortable seats with the cup holder right there. And I feel like the moving going experience has dramatically improved over the last few decades and that theaters really have stepped it up and invested the money. And I feel like in general, I've gone to those luxury places too, but in general, I think movie going is really good in terms of the quality of what you see in terms of sound and picture and the theater is clean and there's not sticky floors i feel like they've done a really great job so you know maybe she needs to go to a different theater (laughs) yeah maybe i mean it depends on where you go right and i think the big chains have the ones who have had the capital up until now to make those improvements have really spent the big bucks um the smaller like definitely the the smaller chains and the mom and pops and the three screens. I mean, they're always kind of struggling and operating on a shoestring budget, but they've really been struggling. And then also you look at the, I mean, I have been back to a couple, a a smaller chain that I won't name. um, And, you know, it's thinking, you know, it's going to be great to be back in sort of a local theater and just like small screen. Seats are okay. Like it's clear that, they haven't been open for a while, you know, like that wears on a place. I don't know what it is, but it definitely has an impact. That's true. But maybe, you know, I, maybe you two can answer my question because you talked about diversity of what movies are shown. And I'm talking about a big screen theater like AMC, but I'm in Birmingham, Alabama at the moment. And that theater screen is always showing at least one Bollywood film. There is clearly a Mm. Desi population here, which I'm not familiar with. I don't know where they are, but clearly they're always showing at least one film from Bollywood. There's usually one or two art films. And of course, when a big movie opens up for the first few days, they are showing it on five screens or something. But I see art house films, docs and international films in Birmingham, Alabama, which is not a strong movie going town by any stretch. I think it's I think if you compare it to other cities of its size, it's probably low on the scale. It's not a very strong, good town in terms of audiences going. So I see good diversity here. 
And of course, you always do whatever you see in front of you. Well, that seems fine. Is it? Are there problems with studios demanding too many screens for a single movie that they can't show uh, more diverse offerings on their screens? Or what is she referring to in general? Or what's the problem between exhibitors and distributors there? That's what I was wondering too. And I would like to be able to follow up and ask about that because I agree there, there does seem to be like a lot of different types of movies available. But if you look at the sort of top 10 box office, what people are actually gravitating to and seeing it's like clearly like the diversity of that content has changed from 25 years ago. And the studios have tended to, I think her main beef seems to be that the studios have seeded this, um, this, area of the business the um the mid-budget adult facing drama and comedy to streaming services like you just don't see like that many r-rated comedies anymore any just like straight comedies you just don't see that many um mid-budget dramas that are made for grown-ups in the theaters anymore you have like sort of like you have this these two worlds right you have the popcorn pictures that are made for teenage boys and you have the art house movies that are made for people like us. And then you have, um, and you have phone, phone booth also. and That's phone it. booth is on Netflix. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. To all the boys I loved before that's on Netflix. Yeah. As well. yeah. And, and Coda is a perfect example. This is a movie that won Sundance and it is the type of movie that would have over time gained phenomenal word of mouth much as it did at sundance this past year to the point where it was purchased for 25 million dollars by apple and now it's on apple tv i don't hear anybody talking about it mm. now maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm just in the wrong circles and i'm not here but that is a, a a movie that would have had legs it might not have opened to 50 million dollars but it would have made the same amount of money week after week as more people heard about it now the problem of course is that we're in the middle of a pandemic and who knows whether uh, the people who would normally see that type of film who are maybe 50 plus feel safe going to the movie theaters. Well, back like 10 years ago, that would have been, that movie would have been sideways or it would have been um, Little Miss Sunshine. Or Parasite like, last like, year. Or yeah, a movie like the, like a feel, but I'm talking about like a feel oh, yeah. good kind of family, you know, uplifting kind of thing where it's like, clearly there is a potential for a wider audience there. Um, yeah, it just it just seems like that kind of thing comes out every couple of years. Like you see that kind of movie. Like it, it's basically it's kind of a cliche at this this point in the way that they market it. Um, but yeah, it does seem like that kind of thing is going more toward streaming rather than uh, straight theatrical. Yeah, there's no question. Studios are not making smaller films. They're not making those mid budget gambles. Even though when you look at the numbers and you look at 2019. There are a whole bunch of Knives Out and movies that are in that range yeah. that really click and work theatrically before they even get to streaming or DVD or video on demand. So it's a mistake. And, you know, a more diverse slate is a healthy slate. You know, you don't want to always be swinging for the fences. Sometimes you want to double. Yeah, and I think the studios see the writing on the wall where it's like, we're starting to run out of, <laughs> we're starting to run out of IP <laughs> to, to reboot. Like, you, you can't just recycle the same stuff over and over again you need a knives out once in a yes, while yes they can <laughs> i mean they show no pretense can, of slowing down whatsoever every week no. you know you're like oh my god really you know that's that the best you got 
Yeah, yeah, but there is a there is definitely like a recognition among some people that they need to find some originals to to replenish uh, the pot a little bit. Like you know, Free Guy, it it worked. You know, but now they're now Disney's going to make a sequel, and it's probably going to do fine. <laughs> well, now you speaking of Free Guy, that now you're going to have to follow this thread because uh, wasn't Ryan Reynolds married to Scarlett Johansson? Well, they dated at least. Is that maybe. true? That's know. not my. I don't know. That's I don't, not really my area. Of yeah, I don't really know there. Why? Well, the reason I mentioned that there's only one reason I mentioned that because they both made movies for Disney, and you mentioned something on stage that I thought was interesting. You said you can't get into the fourth or fifth paragraph of any story you're writing for the LA Times without mentioning this lawsuit between Johansson and Disney. Is I mean, it's been a couple of days, so I'm sure that's still true. Uh, Absolutely. It, Mm-hmm. That has what has the impact from your vantage point been of that lawsuit? It seems like it was a nuclear bomb, uh, a nuclear bomb slash negotiating tactic um, that seems to have served into the negotiating of other stars. Right, like a few days after that, we saw Emma Stone. Um, you, or you get twenty million dollars, and you get twenty million dollars. Everybody loves yeah, us, exactly. says Disney. Exactly. So Emma Stone, her movie was also put on day and date um, through Disney Premier Access, and right. so someone close to her said that there was a there was a threat of a lawsuit, similar lawsuit. And then, what do you know? A couple of days later, there's a deal between her and Disney uh, that, where she gets a sequel to the movie. And one can assume we don't know the terms, but one can assume a pretty decent sized payout for that. And you know. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what she negotiated. It'll be interesting to see how explicitly uh, stars start to negotiate exclusive theatrical releases. Well, we know that's going to be in every contract going forward. The, the, the assumption, this was an interesting story in Variety or The Hollywood Reporter saying, you know, these are kept vague for good reason because you never want to yeah. rule out possibilities and you want to leave wiggle room and everybody understands we're going to do business tomorrow, so you're not going to screw me over today. And in this case, you felt like, at least PR-wise, Disney just said, oh, screw it. We're done with Black Widow. We don't need her anymore. And their public statements were just outrageously you know, obnoxious. And no matter what happens with contracts, you feel like that might have created some ill will among creative talents who don't like to see themselves sullied in public by a major studio. But we'll see. Trust Sperling to know the latest celebrity gossip. Ryan Reynolds was married to Scarlett exactly. Johansson for three years, and now he's married to Blake Lively. So turn to Sperling whenever you want to know, you know, who's in and who's out <laughs> in the romance. He's in the phone booth all the time. The kissing booth, I mean. The phone booth is creepy. That's where you're in there for trapped, and Joel Schumacher has a camera on. But the kissing booth, that's where you'll find Sperling. Yeah, it's well, where no. cellular junkies and a TMZ collide. That is where, yeah. we, that's where we live. <laughs> well, no, I, I just figured, you know, when you looked at it, you, you know, Emma Stone is with ICM. Uh, Ryan Reynolds is with uh, William Morris, and Scarlett Johansson is with CAA. So they cut deals with two two actors from the other agencies, so that they're not going to be fighting with those agencies. Now they really only have to fight with Brian Lord and Creative Artists Agency. I mean, I don't. Know. I don't That's agree just, because it's just one deal. The next deal they need to do right by people. You know, they 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 knew perfectly well that her bonuses were contingent on a, a traditional theatrical release, and when it was over, they should have said, "Hey." We understand now you're not going to be able to get close to six or seven hundred million dollars and that you naturally expected this movie would get there and you would get an extra 30 million. Let's see where it ends up and we'll, we'll, we'll make good by you, you know, like they did for Warner Brothers. And they didn't. They just said, oh, this horrible woman wants money during a pandemic. How awful she is. We want the money for ourselves. 
Right. Imagine greed in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> what a funk. Hold what on. Outrage. That's our headline. Greed in Hollywood. CinemaCon. Greed in Hollywood. There you go. Uh, but now, what Rather was your than take? the big screen it back, it's back. That would have been a bigger, better headline, I think. <laughs> what, uh, from, from your vantage point, you were there for four days, just like I was. What was your big takeaway from, from CinemaCon this year? It was a mix, you know. I mean, a, there was a month there right before it happened where it was kind of like, is this actually going to go forward? But, you know, people, they, they, had the show go on. I talked to several exhibitors who thought it was worth it just to just to go and 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 see and talk to people and kind of make a little bit of a statement that you know we're still here and we're still we're still working and that if you let this go for you know two two and a half to three and a half years rather than just one and a half years, you're going to be really in trouble and basically ceding the ground to the people who say that this business is really on the downslope. So it it was it was definitely a mixed bag. I mean, it was it was quieter than usual. You could definitely get a coffee a lot faster <laughs> than, than you could, despite five hundred Regal general managers in line. That was the that was the funniest part. Really, it was just like looking at every because like, I'm walking around looking who to talk to. Right, they're like minions uh, badges. Yeah, and it's just like Regal, 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 <laughs> just pointing everywhere. Well, you know, it used to be that, uh, used to be, uh, in normal years, uh, Cinemark, AMC and Regal, they kind of trade off who gets to bring their general managers. And so this year it was Regal. Ironically, next year was Regal's year, but, uh, Regal agreed to, to bring 500 of their U S based managers. And normally they're not necessarily allowed into every event because there wouldn't be enough room for everybody. But since people from overseas yeah, people from overseas couldn't come, so they said, "Okay, come on in." And so all of a sudden, like everywhere you turn, there were these big, giant yellow badges, as you say, Michael, like minions. Actually, ironically, yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, normally they'd say, "Okay, only this hundred people are allowed in." You know, like they give them each certain times to show up. But uh, there was, you're right. A lot of people weren't there uh, because they couldn't come into the country. Ellis Jacob, who's one of the heads of NATO, the National Association of Theater Owners, and the head of uh, Cineplex, he's from Canada. He couldn't come in, so he wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, and they, I hope they were all at the panel that I hosted. <laughs> the, the crowd was actually pretty good. I was surprised. It was like Thursday afternoon uh, at a sparsely attended CinemaCon. It was like, this is going to be a dead zone. But no, there were people there. It was good. It was by far the best panel of the show, and uh, I think, as one person said, they used the the word we're not allowed to use anymore. This is unprecedented, which was uh, referring to the, the the fisticuffs taking place on stage. Uh, and thank you very much for not only uh, moderating that panel so well, but also joining us today to talk about it. Yeah, it was super fun to talk to you guys about this stuff. And I'm enjoying the wide shots, so everybody sign up for it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Oh, and for Sperling's um, information, his database, um, he just likes to keep track of this stuff. Are you single? Are you married? Uh, do you have a celebrity in your life? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no prospects for celebrity hookups in the future. I'm uh, happily. I actually just had my 10 year wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations! That's awesome. Thank you. That's yeah, great. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, that's success. <laughs> that doesn't happen much in Hollywood. Well, thanks again for the taking the time. <laughs> Talk to you guys later. Well, that was great, Orion, to join us. It was a. It sounds like a great panel and a and a and a useful CinemaCon. Like he says, 
it was a difficult year. It was hard for everyone to get together, but you do want to keep the lights on and let people know this industry matters, ex exhibition matters, and we're doing everything we can to, to keep the communication lines open. Yeah, and they did try to do it safe. They kind of made you show your vaccine um, card. I, Apparently, 89.6% so. of the people that were registered for CinemaCon were actually uh, vaccinated. And the studio executives who showed up, you know, normally they get everything handed to them. Like, oh, here's your pass. You don't have to go <laughs> now, to registration. Here's your hotel key. And they said, uh, oh, and you have to go and show your vaccine card to the, you know, the lab that is doing these uh, approvals. And they were like, what do you mean? Just bring me my, uh, bring me my wristband. And they were like, no, you have to go. And they, they were apparently very upset that they had to go and do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so hard. Well, you know, there's no justice in the world, but sometimes there is. Uh, it's our social justice and sexual misconduct section, which is always bristling with information. Uh, in the world of porn or adult film, this is pretty straightforward. It's a win. Adult film star Ron Jeremy is indicted on 33 counts of sexual assault. He pled not guilty. He's already in jail on some, on some uh, convictions. The charges include multiple counts of rape, sexual assault, battery and lewds acts with minors below the age of 14 and 15. 21 women have spoken up in this latest round of indictments. Short, short, short little tidbit here. Very hard to get the police to listen to you when you work in the adult film industry. You're a woman or a man. You say, I've been sexually harassed or raped. They're not, they're laughing at you. And so hopefully that's beginning to change. In China, we've been covering Chris Wu, this Canadian Chinese uh, influencer, really. That's a confusing story. He has now been arrested on rape charges and his shows have been erased from the web. More importantly, more interestingly, somebody said as of 2019, Chinese courts have a 99.9% .9 conviction rate. If you're arrested, you're going to go to jail. You're going to go to prison is what I should say. So at some point he will be deported, but that might not be until after he has spent a number of years in prison. Rape involves a minimum of three years. I have no idea what's going on there, but Sperling, you highlighted an interesting story, didn't you? Yeah, this has actually gained a lot of traction, this story, over the last, I would say, seven to ten days, and that is China is done with its celebrity culture. I mean, we talked about Fan Bingbing back in 2017 mm -hmm. when she was kind of caught evading taxes because she had two different contracts, one to show the government, I make no money, don't tax me, and one that was actually correct where it was, pay me $20 million. And so there are a number of, uh, of celebrities that are kind of being canceled, and I mean that in the most literal sense. They're still, <laughs> yeah. they're still breathing, but you can't find any of their work. The you, cyber think you, you think you have cancel culture? We'll show you cancel culture. <laughs> exactly. The Cyberspace, Cyberspace Administration of China, the CAC, <laughs> on Friday, they issued this pair of uh, notices. The first one was any act, they're going to take punitive action against the spread of harmful information in celebrity fan groups. They're basically trying to cut down on these celebrity fan groups and all of these celebrities that have basically been allowed to get away with uh, not murder necessarily, but with a lot no, of no, uh, no, no. no, just just glorifying consumer culture and diamonds and luxurious living. And they're like, that doesn't pair with our image as a proletarian state. And they've decided that doesn't work for them right now. Right. I mean, Vicky Zhao Wei is the highest paid actress in the world, $29 million she got for her last picture. She is the face of Fendi in China, and she's pretty much erased from, uh, like, all of her work is down. All of, and the chilling effect here is that you have streaming services like IKEA 
uh, the CEO was like, well, I, I think uh, fan celebrity is unhealthy. And so is, uh, yeah. so is the, these uh, reality shows, which turn uh, normal people into celebrities. This is a very, these talent contest show, we should not do them. Uh, we should not be creating celebrities. So it's no it's, more China idol. <laughs> yes. It's not only the tax scandals, but the, the crime scandals and the, yeah, and just it, the living at large scandals, really. It's not always about people who've done wrong in ways that we would say, but just people who are someone who had a surrogate baby. That became a scandal for various cultural reasons. Somebody just having a luxurious life becomes conspicuous consumption is on the outs in terms of China. So, and you know, like the old Soviet Union, if you were disappeared, suddenly every official photo, you were scrubbed out of it. Uh, they're taking this to the cyber level, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, imagine if you tried to find Black Widow on Disney Plus, and it was gone, not because of a lawsuit, but because of some political reason. And oh, by the way, Scarlett Johansson was, all of her work was just missing. It was yeah, not no, it's, it's, available it's, anywhere. It's We're laughing, but it's creepy and scary, but that's what happens when you live in a totalitarian state. Uh, but we live in a country where people can pay a price and be kicked out of office. Uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo is gone, and now amidst the fallout, the head of Time's Up, one of the groups formed to help bring accountability to the media world, to the entertainment business, the head of that place is out because they were getting too comfy and close with Governor Cuomo and others. There's been a, a string of, of issues where people said, we're the women being sexually harassed and we feel like you're on the side of the powerful. Uh, I, I see a similar problem for the GLAAD Media Awards. You know, GLAAD is a good organization. They've done great stuff. But then you get your annual fundraiser and it involves bringing in studios and celebrities. And suddenly the people you're supposed to keep in a watch on are the people you want to be nice to. And that just doesn't work well. And a similar problem has happened at Time's Up and has been interfering with their core purpose. We'll have to see if they work that out. But there is some good news. Theater diversity here in America. Black Theater United, a new deal for Broadway. This group came to an agreement with top creatives in the theater world with some very broad and positive mission statements, but also some specific pledges that signees agreed to do. They've got issues around things you've never thought of, like hair, around casting and vocal requirements and how they're described, uh, and, and a commitment to never assemble an all-white creative team on a show again, regardless of subject matter. Here's the one I love, an end to unpaid internships. They should be against the law. You should not be able to have someone come work for you as an intern and pay them less than a livable wage. Uh, and, but the same thing has happened in the UK in the TV industry. Uh, major TV producers in the UK, including the BBC, Sky, Channel 4, Amazon, and a bunch of others, signed a pact called the Freelance Charter to improve working conditions and diversity among freelancers who work in the entertainment biz, in this case, specifically TV. They're going to improve diversity. They're going to fight bullying. They're going to create space for whistleblowing and much more. Great stuff. Good intentions. Now they have to follow through, but at least they're talking about it. Yeah, I might say that uh, it's almost a big deal. <laughs> That's right. We don't have info on streaming this week because I got info on the top grossing or the top most watched uh, properties on streaming services like Outer Banks is on Netflix with 1.4 billion views. Virgin River is still doing well. An acquired series, Manifest is still top five. And this is a week where the Summer Olympics began. Uh, and so there's a lot of competition for eyeballs. But Manifest has done so well, they've got picked up for a fourth and final season on Netflix. Netflix has snapped up the rights, much like Lazarus. They're going to do 20 more episodes. So Manifest will get a final season strictly because they put it on 
Netflix and people flocked to it and watched it in droves. In India, The Legend of Hanuman on Disney Plus is the biggest animated success story in streaming. It's dubbed into multiple languages, great visuals for a story that's been told many times before, but this animated series uh, is proving really huge and they're in season two. On the flip side, on Disney Plus, they released a TV adaptation of Turner and Hooch. Ryan uh, Fonder was talking about, gee, can they not come up with something original? Well, they didn't hear. They said, let's redo Turner and Hooch, a cop and his dog. And, uh, something nobody was asking for. It didn't even make the top 10 of originals on its opening week. Sorry for the people involved. Maybe creatively it's great. Maybe word of mouth will spread. But, you know, nobody was asking for Turner and Hooch. It just was not a big deal. Oh, okay. So now I tried to, to you know, push us into big deal and big whoop, but now you did it because you did say big deal. So now it must be time for big deal or big whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story. Well, after one day of filming episodes, new Jeopardy host, Mike Richards is out. He said, you know what? I think Michael Giltz would be a better host. I'm going to step down. Uh, no, actually, what if, happened, only, if I would be the better choice, not my um, for the love of God. Okay. Um, well, a, a new stream of offensive and anti-Semitic comments from a podcast he did while producing oh, The Price is who Right. Hasn't? Who hasn't? Yeah, we do it all the time. Uh, they, they, it made the one-time stand-up comic a little too toxic for America's most respected game show. Of course, they're not firing Mike Richards for frequent comments. Too offensive to be a host. They're just kind of requiring some sensitivity training and hiring a minder to make sure he doesn't do it again. A minder? If he yeah. needs a minder, maybe he shouldn't have a job. <laughs> well, Mayim Bialik, as you mentioned, Michael, will stay as a host of primetime specials and a possible spinoff, as well as guest hosting for the next three weeks. But Jeopardy is going back to the drawing board, inviting a series of guest hosts and then making hello. a new... Hello, I'm available. I'm available. Oh, 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 okay, <laughs> I was like, why are you saying hello? Uh, well, they're <laughs> going to make a new decision sometime down the road. I wonder if Mike Richards will be a part of that. Uh, as Hollywood reporters Daniel Feinberg put it, oh, uh, the bright side? The next host of Jeopardy need only live up to the standards set by Mike Richards. So... <laughs> There you go. Hey, could you imagine what it would be like if they, he only had like 40 podcasts? Okay. Right. Could you imagine if they had to vet us? <laughs> 553. I pity the intern. I pity yeah. the unpaid intern who would have to listen to them all. Man, they really, they really hate day and date streaming releases, don't they? <laughs> yeah. This thing he said about Michael Jackson's death back in 2009. I, I don't, don't know. know. I don't know. And one of them is gay. <laughs> well, I just well, can't tell which one. <laughs> <laughs> well, was any of this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. It's a big property. You know, you want to do a spinoff with Mayim. I'm not a fan. And the more I learn about her and her comments on natural childbirth and other stuff, wow, do not want to be anywhere near her for this show. Put her on the spinoff. I don't like the idea of anyone being a host of the primetime stuff. That's a way to promote your show and your host. Why would you have a different host? for primetime. That's ridiculous. If it's Alex Trebek in daytime, it should be Alex Trebek for, you know, college game night in primetime. Same thing for Jeopardy. You got a new host. Why the hell would you have a separate person host the primetime special? Ooh, ooh, can I answer that question? Yes. Because of diversity, you need to hire a woman. So no, no, you, you don't. To... You're going to only have a single host for the show. And that's just a few times a year. It's just not good for the, it's not good for the property. You got a host, 
They should be the face of the show for the next 20 years. Make sure whoever it is, whether it's a buzzer or whomever, that they're doing primetime as well as daytime. All for diversity. But in terms of the show and what's best for promoting it, it seems really dumb to me to have a few times a year where you have more audiences than ever and you don't sell them on the guy they're going to see day in and day out in, uh, in, uh, in the afternoon. I think that's a big mistake. Well, now, assuming we're not blocked in China already from what we previously said just you know, <laughs> 10 minutes ago, uh, we've got some news for the young people listening in who love video games. Winter is coming. No, not the white walkers, but the new restrictions the government is putting into place. Starting now, kids under 18 years old and restricted to just are, they're going to be restricted to just three hours of video games most weeks. I'm going to ship my kids to China. Now that I'm reading this. Uh, and they can play, by the way, they can play them on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights from 8 a.m. to 9 No, no, no. Oh, only 8 no. p.m. to 9 p.m. Yes, sorry, yes. Oh, wow. So some gaming uh, on official holidays will also be allowed. And more. That's it. My, you know, make sure your Pikachus are well-fed and ready to hibernate. You know, when I was, I took a plane to get to CinemaCon, and the guy next to me, was playing uh, Pokemon Go while on the runway. I was like, seriously, dude? Are there, are, are there things there on the runway that you can do? I couldn't believe it. And this guy was really good at it. Yeah. Well, I didn't but know anyway. there'd be a, a, a thing there. That's crazy. Uh, it is a big whoop, of course, for the rest of the world. But imagine the problems. Number one, 100 million kids logging on at the same time on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night to play a game. They're all going to be playing from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. That's the only time they can play. So they will all literally log on in the same second, three nights in a row. Number two, God forbid your parents want you to do something on Friday or Saturday night. We got to go visit Aunt Mabel. No, no, I've got to play World of Warcraft. I mean, it just seems a recipe for disaster. But you know, once the children of the top officials complain, maybe they'll change it again. Well, you know, there was a documentary, and I can't remember the name of it. I want to say it was called Web Junkie uh-huh. or Web Junkie. Yeah, I think it was, it was about the, just how big a problem this whole video game addiction uh, oh, issue sure. is in China to the point where they actually have, uh, like, schools that they send these, these kids off to where they basically are removed from video games and they're not allowed to play video games. And then they, you know, the, they relapse and they, you know, all of a sudden they're playing video games again and they have to get sent back. Uh, well, it was it's a, an issue all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, okay, here's something that's interesting. For the first time in a decade, solo female artists hold down the top three slots on Billboard's album chart. Billie Eilish is at number one. Doja Cat, although just because it's a cat doesn't mean Doja Cat is a female. But in any case, Doja Cat is number two, and Olivia Rodrigo is at number three. And yes, I know Doja Cat is a female. It was a cat joke. That was my feline joke. Oh, I was like, what? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know two- where you- I'm like, am I wrong? Is Doja Cat a man? <laughs> no, no. I'm just. Uh, in 2011, Beyonce, Adele, and Selena Gomez held down the top three positions on the Billboard 200 albums chart. Since Selena Gomez's album is technically credited to Selena Gomez and the scene, you, I guess you could argue. This last happened in 2010 when Susan Boyle, Taylor Swift, and Jackie Ivancho did it during the holiday season of December 2010. But is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, I think it's a big deal. I, I mean, it's, you know, it's great. It's great to see. Um, what I don't understand is why Lord is not on here. Did she not make the charts? Did she? I can't find her on the chart anywhere. 
Well, then uh, it's a, it's no, a, a, it, from a week before she was. Uh, uh, but she's. You know, I can't find her anywhere on the chart this week. She wouldn't have dropped off the chart completely. She was at number five her opening week. Oh, and okay. I'm not sure. It looked like did she drop off the chart? I actually didn't like the album that much, but Lord, Lord, that doesn't seem possible that she's been been rejected that entirely from one week to the next. So if you know what the hell's going on and why I can't find Lord on the Billboard Top 200 chart, let us know. Well, uh, you didn't like the album, uh, Lord's latest album, uh, Solar Power. Uh, I wonder if it would make the Hollywood Critics Association list. Probably not because they only do TV and film. But anyway, the Hollywood Critics Association, which could be very pleased. It would definitely be pleased to replace the Golden Globes, including its TV specials. They just <laughs> delivered it their first awards to television. The big drama winner. Now, these are just TV awards, okay? Not movie awards. New Amsterdam on NBC. Say what? what I don't what? even know. Yeah, I didn't know New Amsterdam was a TV show. I thought it was a beer. Uh, it's well, a spinoff from The Blacklist. Oh, no, it's ah, not a spinoff. Okay. It stars one of the, the stars of The Blacklist. He moved on to his own hospital drama. Ah, okay. Well, in the spirit of Oprah, the, the HCAs decided to award Best Comedy, Best Drama, and so on in categories like Network Drama, where New Amsterdam won, Cable Drama, which was won by Freeform's Cruel Summer, and Streaming Drama, which was hunted down by The Mandalorian. Ah, get it? Get it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, well done. Yeah. Hey, everybody wins. You get an HCA, and you get an HCA. Anyway, Ted Lasso, Mayor of Easttown, WandaVision, and Michael's good friend Bo Burnham, they also won, in both case, with the special Bo Burnham Inside. Burnham also had a top 10 album with songs from the special, so he's now the Howard Stern of extremely tall stand-up comics turned auteurs. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop, of course. I have no problem with these breakdowns, but they also need to show some guts. They also need to say the top drama overall or the top TV show overall, the top performance overall. You know, they need to, they need to step it up. Otherwise, you've given three different shows a little attention, but you haven't said this is the best drama of the year and this is the best comedy and you need to do it you need to you need to just say you know right bite the bullet you've given each category it's a little love and network needs that but then you need to double down and say which is the best is it cruel summer is it the mandalorian i don't know but you need to choose well can you say i classical i can i well can <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, yes, Apple Music is embracing classical music by buying up the streaming service Prime Phonic, which is based in the Netherlands. The company will be shut down and Apple will launch a dedicated classical music app in 2022. It's actually very hard to present classical music since you can search for Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and discover a gazillion different recordings when someone is searching for Led Zeppelin IV. There's only one choice. Mozart, on the other hand? Oi! Prime Phonic has a handle on how to do it right, and Apple is rebranding it for the wealthier, older fans of classical music who don't want Spotify or don't mind paying twice. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal, I think. It scares me because I pay for Spotify. I might pay for Apple Music, and I love how you have access to so much stuff. I hope they don't remove all classical music from Apple Music because... I don't want to pay $10 a month for classical and for jazz and for world and for bluegrass. And, you know, do not silo this stuff. Maybe I'm being selfish. Maybe I'm being stupid. It's not fair to say for 10 bucks a month, I get access to all music. But, you know, there's a way to present classical music better. But don't 
you know, don't make music this isolated experience where you're only exposed to, you know, one thin sliver of popular music. One of the great things about it is that you can access anything when you get interested. If a, if a piece of classical music is played on a commercial and you're, oh, that's, you know, you watch a, a Nissan, what, what was the commercial where they used Take 5 by Dave Brubeck? I forget what the, the ad was, which, which car company, but they used Take 5 by Dave Brubeck. You hear that and you go, oh, I want to check that out. You can click on it. Well, if they have jazz on a different service, that's never going to happen. And that's not good for the record company. So I hope they don't silo everything away. Yes, provide some specialized deluxe service for people who absolutely love classical and opera, but keep it also on your regular service. Or you know what? If you want to subscribe to Just Classical, okay, make it a certain amount. And if you're already an Apple Music subscriber, an add-on, maybe. I don't know. Well, or, they'll bundle. They'll bundle the heck out of it, of course. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be bundled in there somewhere someday soon. Yeah, well, anyway, the pandemic rages on, but that's not stopping entertainment companies from pre prepping for their future. Universal started building a theme park in Beijing years ago, and now it's finally ready. They announced Universal Beijing, which will open on September 20th, five years after they broke ground in 2016. They also have Asian parks in Japan and Singapore, among other attractions, park visitors will find Harry Potter, Kung Fu Panda, Jurassic Park, and the Minions from Despicable Me. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Oh, it's a big deal. There is a future after this current pandemic. There will be more pandemics, but we'll deal with it. And theme parks are still a great business, just like movie exhibition. But one thing, this was designed and built and started being built before this pandemic uh, woke up the entire world, finally, to issues we're going to have for the rest of our lives. And I'm wondering how that will affect park design down the road. I bet if they could go back and rejigger things, they're learning from what happened and when they had to deal with crowds and bring people slowly back. And there's, ah, we should do this, we should do that. So park design, that's going to be an interesting wave of the future, how they rejigger parks down the road. Well, that sounds very kind of insidery to me, like mm -hmm. almost like you really know what you're talking about. Almost. I actually have a friend's daughter who's about to, who's in college and is thinking of park design, of amusement park design as a career. I'm like, well, that's cool. And we know we've had people on the show who design rides for theme parks, and they too are going to be grappling with these issues. That's right. And maybe we should have them back so they can be on Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. I guess, what are we talking about today? Pandemic, pandemic. We've got this in Inside Baseball because it's quite clear it's going to create complications throughout the biz for a long time to come. We're just going to lead up to the one big story, which is in TV, which really caught my eye. But we'll give you some headlines first. Live Nation. They have joined AEG in requiring proof of vaccination at all shows and festivals. They'll also accept a recent COVID test, whereas AEG is vaccination only. So basically, around the country, at most big shows, if you want to go to see a rock, a music concert, you're going to have to have proof of vaccination or a recent COVID test. BTS, the Korean boy band, they have canceled their world tour. Florida Georgia Line, Garth Brooks, they've canceled their shows. You know why? You know why Garth Brooks canceled his show rather than asking for a proof of vaccination? Uh, because he's a country act, and you know what? With his fan base, it's probably easier for him to just cancel the show rather than ask for vaccination and mask and pick ticking people off. You know what? There's a big divide right now in country music it's really getting ugly. Like progressive, like Jason Isbell is like, you got to have a vaccination. You got to mask up people and the right wing of country music. It's, it's really kind of getting ugly. There's a lot of stories about that. And things are getting tenser elsewhere. 
But in LA, you're going to need masks at outdoor concerts and festivals. The Toronto Film Fest, you must be vaccinated. The American film market is going to be fully online this year. It's it's not going to happen in person. VidCon 2021, that's been canceled. And then we get to live theater. There was a story about Laura Osnes who was going to take part in a benefit concert. She's a big Broadway star. She made her name on a reality show, which China will never have again, called Grease is the Word or I Want to Be on Grease or whatever the hell it was called. She won that and got a part on a Broadway show and it's become a success. But she was booted from this benefit concert. And she said, I wasn't booted, I quit. And yes, she's not vaccinated, but she wasn't offered a chance to show proof of of testing every day. Now she's out of the Disney Princess concert tour as well. Why is this interesting? Because her co-star in that benefit show was like, he said he went to her, he's like, I have children who are four and five years old. Could you could you reconsider or could you, you know, he did not want to do the show with someone who wasn't vaccinated. And he said, you didn't even want her to be, you know, proof of, you know, proof of clearness the day before, because that doesn't mean you don't have it. So uh, they were having a tussle back and forth. And I think he was respectful and she was too. But this is getting difficult on a theater tour. Stars are starting to refuse to join a production without vaccine requirements. However, some states ban vaccine requirements for the audience or even wearing a mask. What to do? That brings us to General Hospital. If all this is making you sick, go to General Hospital. There, on the show of the daytime soap for ABC, the stars are battling over COVID. Now, normally, people wouldn't hear about this, but every actor has Twitter and social media. And one person on General Hospital said, I've got COVID. Somebody on our set is not willing to get vaccinated or wear a mask when they're not acting. And then somebody else complained. And then everybody figured out it was this one actor on General Hospital, at least that they knew of, who wasn't vaccinated. And then they said, we should fire him. That's wrong. And he says, you're all dictators. You're all evil people. You're all you're all mules being tricked into taking this vaccine. It's got very, very ugly. Another actor on General Hospital says they want SAG-AFTRA to step in. We can't have actors on sets with unmasked and unvaccinated actors. It's costing them, you know, jobs and they're having to risk their life or the health and life of their family and loved ones to keep going to work. This is going to get ugly. <laughs> it's happening in theater. It's happening on television, uh, TV shows. It's got to be happening on film. We've got, you know, a lot of actors speaking up. And this isn't going to go away once COVID fades, is it? No, not at all. No, uh, especially with productions. Productions now have, uh, and it's costing feature films about one to two million dollars extra to have these zones where if you're zone A, you can be on set without a mask. If you're zone B, you're behind the camera and you probably are masked and you're, you know, you need to be there. If you're zone C, you're like, you know, by the catering trucks and, you know, you're a teamster or something like that. So there's all these zones mm -hmm. and then you have to do all this contact tracing and it's, it's really causing quite a bit of, uh, uh, you know, consternation, certainly with executives and, and, and talent alike. And you can't keep it quiet with social media, can you? Our, no. our, our, our longtime co-host, Karen, would say, for the love of God, get off Twitter. <laughs> don't, yeah. let, don't post on Twitter. But my God, what are they going to do? I mean, sag after really has to step in because every actor cannot feel like they have to fight for themselves. If they don't set some standards and say, no, you want to work on a TV set, you got to get vaccinated. You know, sorry, unless you have some clear, you know, health reason why you shouldn't be vaccinated. Uh, you know, you can't do that. You can't refuse. It's putting people's, it puts the job at risk. It puts the show at shutdown risk. It puts your fellow actors at risk and their family and loved ones. And you can't do it. If they don't do that, what the hell's going to happen? Everybody's just going to fight it out on brawl every single time there's a new movie or a new TV show. Yeah. And ultimately, look, this is a deadly virus. 
Yeah. And there's going to be other viruses and there's going to be other health issues that, you know, nobody walked on a set, you know, refusing to get a, a polio vaccine or a mumps vaccine or a diphtheria vaccine. They got them. But you know when they got them? When they were kids. You know why your kids get so many vaccines? Because people are too stupid to get them when they're adults. And so sometimes they said in history that let's just give it to them when they're little kids, because otherwise, if we wait till they're 18, when it's really important, they won't get it. That's why a lot of kids get all these vaccines. It's it's okay for them. It's safe. They've checked it out. But that's why your kids get a bunch of vaccines all at once, because you won't come back a second time and you won't get it when you're 18 or 20. You won't bother. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I don't need but, that chicken pox vaccine. Uh, it's but, all for, I'm fine. I don't know anybody. <coughs> you know. And then I, the next thing you know, you're dead. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of dead, I'm going to rush through a couple people before we get to Lou Grant. Uh, in our obituary section, cable channel pioneer Nicholas Davatzis, I apologize to his family and loved ones, Nicholas Davatzis or Davatzes is dead at the age of 80, 79. He's been around so long, Nicholas was there when the entertainment network, owned in part by RCA, <laughs> merged with the arts network, owned in part by Hearst and ABC. None of those companies exist in the way they did at that time. Those two channels, the entertainment network and the arts network, became A&E which, due in no small part to Nicholas, begat the History Channel. Mic drop. Those are two major channels. Ultimately, his portfolio of channels stretched to 180 territories around the world. I feel like we take all those basic cable channels for granted. Like, well, of course there's a Lifetime. Of course there's CNN. Of course there's the History Channel. But people like Nicholas really made that happen, didn't they? Yes, they did. Now, I'm going to jump around here because we have a, like, there's way too many. Not, I won't uh, take that. I feel like nobody else was going to talk about Nicholas in obituaries, but martial artist and Kill Bill actor Sonny Chiba died at the age of 82 of COVID. Westerners will know him mostly from Kill Bill and Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. That's cool. Check out The Street Fighter from 1974. The tagline was, if you're going to fight, fight dirty. And it was rated X for violence. Wow. Fashion photographer Hero died at the age of 90, one of the most influential commercial photographers in history. Born in China to Japanese parents. His father may have been a spy. Wow crazy life. Dub pioneer Lee Scratch Perry, three huge music acts died this week. Lee Scratch Perry died at the age of 85. He had the skills and the mental health issues of Phil Spector, but at least he didn't kill anyone. He was a giant. Rolling Stone drummer Charlie Watts died at the age of 80. He was a man apart, a dapper dresser. He loved jazz and he was faithful to his wife since they met in 1964. I would say he's the Dean Martin of the band. He was above it all and cooler than the rest because he didn't need our love. Don Everly of the Everly Brothers died at the age of 84. Phil Everly died in 2014. One half of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame group. I love the Everly Brothers. We've got a list in our show notes to my Spotify list where you can check out a now-deleted greatest hit set from Rhino Records called Cadence Classics, which has the prime stuff in their early years like Bye Bye Love and Wake Up Little Susie. Great, great band. Check them out. And finally, Emmy winner Ed Asner has died at the age of 91. A TV legend, a seven-time Emmy winner, he is dead. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you, you look, he is uh, a legend, literally. That's a right. A TV legend. He's one of only two people to win an Emmy for comedy and drama for playing the same character. Now, Uzo Odube did the same thing for Orange is the New Black, but that was really just the change of categorization for the show itself. Ed Asner actually played Lou Grant on the classic sitcom The Mary Tyler Moore Show for seven seasons. Then he played the same role in an hour-long drama, which was a serious show called The Lou Grant Show. Same character, but 
you know, different. I mean, it was the same guy, but not played for laughs as such. And it was an entirely different show from the earlier series. That's unprecedented. No one's ever done that before or since, but he never missed a beat. And he was always advocating for progressive causes. In fact, he always said that the Lou Grant show was canceled by CBS after five seasons because Asner was too outspoken as the head of SAG. CBS said it was ratings, but he has a good argument to make. In their final season, they got six Emmy nominations, including Best Drama and Best Actor. It won for Best Supporting Actress for Nancy Marchand of The Sopranos. And it was practically the only drama to get nominations opposite the juggernaut that was Hill Street Blues. And it was just out of the top 30. On the other hand, CBS had seven of the top 10 shows and probably thought, who needs the grief? <laughs> but I love the Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, you know, you know, you know Ed Asner from he's been on Grace and Frankie, Cobra Kai. He was a voice in Up, the Pixar film. He was in he the, was the old. He was the old man in Up. That's how my kids re remember. Yeah, him. he's he's in Elf. They probably know Elf. He's in Elf too. Yeah, and he had good roles in Rich Man, Poor Man, and Roots, two major, major early miniseries. But truly, the Mary Tyler Moore show is the best sitcom of all time. Uh, I feel that way for many reasons. It's available on Hulu right now. Stream it. Watch maybe two episodes a night or watch one before you watch a movie or a drama or something. It's a great show. It holds up really well. The first season is good. It's a little shaky, but it's good. And then from season two on, it never misses a beat. It just gets better and better. Great cast. Hollywood Reporter, boy, talk about good timing. They did a lengthy profile of Ed Asner by uh, Scott Feinberg, which is well worth your time. And thanks to one of our listeners who tweeted to me about a tweet from Michael Moore. Michael Moore posted a tweet and said, you know what? I was trying to make Roger me. I was completely broke, out of the blue. I wrote to a bunch of celebrities asking for money. And the only one who responded at all was Ed Asner, who said, hey, kid, uh, I don't know you from Adam, but you know, sounds like it'll be a great movie. Here's 500 bucks. And he wrote him a check for 500 bucks. And he said, hey, I was an auto worker once. <laughs> Just wow. uh, That's the kind of guy he was. And he's the last of the original cast from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Only Betty White remains. Of course, she's also the last remaining cast member of Golden Girls and about 27 other TV shows that she's appeared on over the years. So God bless her. But uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show, great show. Check it out. And we are the last remaining cast of this episode of Showbiz Sandbox <laughs> and all other episodes as well. Uh, but you know what? If you want to see whether we make it to episode 554, why not subscribe to our show in iTunes, the Google Play Store, uh, Microsoft Marketplace. I don't know where what Microsoft has now. Stitcher, Spotify, wherever they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find us. Uh, and in some of those podcast aggregators, you can rate and review our show. It helps us out when you do, so please do. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us and ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You, you can also call. You can leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter. We're at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. Or Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is uh, also where you can find us. Uh, the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. We have a website, showbizsandbox.com, which is where you can find a link to Michael's work, which is on a website that changes every week because he's got something new and exciting for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's you've got spunk.com. No, oh, that's a Mary Tyler Moore reference. Exactly. Well done. Well done. Yes. Uh, now, if, if you if, can't. If you go to edasner.com, by the way, you see just a big picture of Ed Asner. God bless him. 
Well, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on Celluloid Junkie. Until next week, play nice. Uh-huh.